Savon Springer is the owner and founder of Native Assets. Any views expressed by Savon or his guests are their own thoughts and opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Native Assets or the guest's respective employer. Any guest appearance by representatives of Web3, NFT, crypto, or any other kind of organization does not constitute an endorsement by Native Assets or the guest's respective employer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be mistaken as financial advice. Always conduct your own due diligence and consult a qualified professional when considering any investments of any kind. Great day, great day. Welcome back. And today's episode is is definitely one for those out there who like who like evidence, right? A lot of times in this era, people talk about point to the facts or show me the facts. What's the science? All of this. And so uh, who we have today is, it can deliver that for you in spades. Now, this gentleman has has worked for major companies, conglomerates, and and he's helped co-author PhD papers. Uh, for, I think Harvard, he can correct me in a second uh, if I'm wrong about that, uh, <laughs> about data. Uh, but uh, what's really important in this whole era of Web3 is that we can't forget the basics, right? We can't fall away from data. And in fact, the blockchain in and of itself, one of the best values that it provides is the ability to see data and connect data sets that before would have been either proprietary or permissioned and unable to really interact with outside data in a way that could give you some really next level insights. So I am very pleased uh, to be joined today by my colleague, Andrew Damon. Welcome to the show, bro. How are you? Awesome. Thanks. I'm doing great. Hell yeah, hell yeah, man. So if you could for a second, just just set the people up, you know, give, give them about a one minute background so that they understand uh, what you have done in the past and how that skill set translates over to the World of Web Free before we get into the the main point of the show today. Yeah, of course. Yeah, this is my uh, my second Web3 role actually here at Palm and been doing this for about 18 months now, which is, I think, in Web3 terms, about 25 years yeah. <laughs> at least it feels like it. Um, so I'm, I'm a veteran, I guess, in that in that case, um, from like full time work. But I actually come from you know a scientific background in formal data analytics and geospatial analytics and macroeconomics, and into healthcare data and healthcare workflows, and somehow ended up in Web three. And basically, what I've done here is I'm one of the first. I, I think I think I'm one of the literal first like full-time data analyst in the sector where we're looking at analyzing, you know, drops and historic data. And a lot of times the most exciting part is that I'm the first one doing it and we're the first ones exploring data sets in a new sector. So it's super exciting. That's kind of why I do it. And that's why I left my cozy healthcare job for the insanity of Web3, which is a little less formal to say the least. Yeah, well, it's 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 great to have you because, to your point, data is so rich and available in this space, right? And I love that I can just take a contract address, throw it in, and I can get all of these this information. But I think the hurdle for a lot of people is that when you do it in that way, the user interface isn't great. You don't actually know everything is in code, so it's like token URI, this boom, 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 this. And if you don't really know how to read a smart contract, and even if you kind of know how to do it. That's not the most effective or efficient way to really get the insights about that raw data. So what I was really hoping we could go over today is before we really just kind of turn this into a series and go into some more specific categories. But if you can do a, a, an outline 
of the power of Web3 data and insights and how you use it and some of the ways that you think it is being underutilized and what people could do if they understood how they could actually make that data interact. Yeah, that's spot on, Sue. And the nuance to, you know, one of the things that I always say, and it's actually, there's actually an article in Cointelegraph that one of my former colleagues wrote about myself, of all things. And I'll drop it in here for good reference, too. And it was around, you know, working with data analysts in the Web2 kind of traditional kind of Fortune 500 realm, where you have really savvy people and you have great analysts who are great at, you know, one or two kind of parts of that sector, whether it's economics or it's scientific data. And when you toss them into a blockchain environment, the nuances of the blockchain would stump anybody. You could be the greatest, you know, data analyst on earth. You don't understand how a blockchain transaction works or the nuances to how wallets function and the differences between, you know, a to and a from or, you know, what Mm. the hex and the transactions actually code out to from minting to sending to somebody, you know, you'd be totally lost. And so having like that background and understanding the transaction side, I've been I've been in the crypto space for about 10 years now, or actually I think it's 11 and a half since about 2011. So just kind of reading blockchain information and sending Bitcoin back and forth across the interweb. So huge boost from there. But just having you know that knowledge uh, where it really takes you to is when you're trying to actually explore that data. And even when I'm jumping on spaces and I'm talking with people and I'm go, they're talking about like transaction history, and I kick them over to like Dude Analytics or Flipside Crypto, which I've just discovered as a really good data platform. Um, a lot of it's just these people understand the blockchain, but they don't understand data. But I always tell them that like if you understand the blockchain side, you're like 90% there. The SQL and the query polling and everything else is the stuff that you're going to learn pretty quickly. So that's always a big boost for it. But there's, you know, I, I think as we've grown and analytics have become, you know, synonymous with Web3, like you said, you know, you can read every blockchain transaction since the dawn of, you know, the first, you know, the first block was mined um, and the, the Genesis block. And that gives you a huge boost to be able to read data. It's in one place. It's not going to go anywhere and it doesn't change, um, which I think is really important for a data analyst to know your data is not going to change on you between today, tomorrow, or next week. All that historical record's always there, which I think is a great thing to have, too. Um, in terms of like tools, and like I said, Flipside Crypto and Dune, they're two great places to start. What's nice, too, is a lot of these platforms have started to have education pieces. So anyone can get started. They can learn how to write queries. I can talk about, you know, the first time I wrote a Dune query and I had no clue what I was doing from the platform. The data model wasn't there, you know, two, three years ago. And I used to just read queries to see what they did. And that's how I learned my structure from there. It's always a good place to start. I tell people, you know, open up the query, read what it's doing, and then pull your data. And you can kind of pull your blockchain data. And then from there, it's, you know, sky's the limit. You get as mm-hmm. complex as just seeing some sales data down to you could track staking on a contract. You could track, you know, who's the whale in that community, who's buying the most NFTs. And then you get into like the actual like forensics of the cryptocurrency world where you start to track mm-hmm. who's sending money to specific contracts. Or my favorite thing, which is what really got me inspired with Web3 data, which was tracking the front running of Q3 of 2021, which was the mm. big meta for all the drops that were coming up, where people were essentially bribing, big air quotes, bribing a miner uh, to basically let their transactions go in first so they can mine all the, they can basically, you know, grab all the NFTs from that drop. 
So very interesting routes, but I used to love digging in to see who was doing the bribing and you'd see people sending out $100,000 in ETH to a mining uh, org to get their transactions in first and to front run, which is kind of mm-hmm. a fun concept. But that's how I started. And that's where I kind of got inspired to really jump into this full time. I was pretty fascinated by the data that was available. Yeah, no, no, you just covered a lot there. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. even concepts like the MEV. I remember the first time hearing about that and, you know, the Flash Boys and, and uh, Flash Bots and uh, everything that, that um, the Ghost Step was doing. And I got involved in the Alchemist community and was helping out there. And um, I may have overinvested in, into Mist when, uh, when there, there was the speculation that they were going to have a direct integration with Uniswap. That's neither here nor there. What I think a lot of folks listening here, I think about uh, on the, 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 these transactions, right? Generally, the things that most people are familiar with is the fact that whenever there's a transaction, you know the two parties involved in that transaction, the contracts that are involved that might correspond to a wallet, you know when it happened, you know how much the transaction was for, you know what currency or what token was used in that transaction, um, and, and you know you know ultimately what it was, was for in theory. Uh, if that transaction was for an NFT, if that transaction or the platform, rather, um, if that happened on Uniswamp or somewhere else, for somebody who might be in marketing or somebody who might be involved with with growth, as we hear more of, of companies like Starbucks doing loyalty programs or Nike and other, you know, uh, Puma did a, a launch recently or an activation. What would you say are, are the main insights, the data that organizations like those and the marketers who work for those organizations, what sort of stuff should they be looking for so that they can be more informed on how to engage with their audience and how to uh, ideally improve the sort of drops that they're doing? Yeah, a big part, and it's not a long-winded description, it depends on, depending on what data they can actually see is super important too, is depending on their tokenomic structure. Uh, A big part of data in the space and where it's transparent and where it's you know missing is the tokenomics side of you know are they using custodial wallets which operate largely on their web 2 systems or are they using just a full decentralized system which gives you technically all the data but you lose the user attribution as in you lose first names emails if you're now a wallet address which is fine because you can still track those that's a big part of for those marketing teams you know they typically will think about that stakeholderness of that if product is deciding that the token is going to be a custodial wallet, they immediately lose the blockchain data but gain other data insights from their own first-party systems. Or if they choose to be fully decentralized, they might want to ask, you know, where is that blockchain going? What chain are we using? And how is their blockchain actual uh, consensus written? So you know, settlement here. Like they have to be mm-hmm. kind of an expert to understand it too, but it's super important because those teams need to know that structure to know where to look for data first. Um, okay. From from that point, once they, you know, have the decisions of, you know, tokenomics from that side and there's clear defined, you know, product constraints and what data is accessible, then you get into really how you dive into that, you know, those wallet addresses. And something that's unique about Web3 is that people are identified by their wallet and that wallet can travel cross-platform. Mm-hmm. That goes into why custodial and non-custodial is important because custodial wallets don't leave the platform. If it's a non-custodial, you know, decentralized platform, you can see somebody who, you know, has their loyalty rewards on Starbucks, but also shops at 
you know, Sephora, for instance, or shops, another big major brand. And you can see those two cross you know, interactions happening in real time with the blockchain. That's a huge difference for marketing. Typically, they have to speculate on where their consumers are going. And, you know, that works not just for, you know, you know marketing, but for everything else, products too. They can actually see, you know, this person likes to shop here. They also like to shop here. And, you know, you have your consumer base there. And that's a huge win for any kind of marketing agency because now you're taking that guesswork away. And in a cookie-less solution for, you know, online commerce too, that's huge. You know, a, a big mm-hmm. part of where marketers need to kind of shift is that they're now, this is now a cookie-less world. And because privacy constraints, you can't actually see what your consumers are traveling to. That's starting to get washed away. And with additional usage of VPNs and other kind of, you know, uh, you know consumer privacy and more technical with VPN, but because they're doing that, you almost need the blockchain to know about your customers. It's it's almost a requirement because it's going to help you know what they're doing. It also tells you more about your consumer. Like, you know, are they buying PFPs? Are they buying an NFT? Are they, you know... Are they engaging with cryptocurrency purchases? Are they actually transacting? You know, we can see all those things. We can also see what else they collect. You know, mm. someone who shops at, you know, they're a huge Starbucks consumer. They also have a board eight. And then you see the, the train, you see the train of, you know, what else they look at, who else fits into that. And we're going to start to see, I think at least in the next few years, that persona of a wallet become more like you as opposed to your browser being you, which is what most marketers are you know, used to seeing is that browser ID. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge transition. Yeah, and I, I can definitely see that taking place as well because, and I'm glad you brought up the word cookies and also the distinction yeah. between the custodial and the non-custodial wallet because there is a huge chasm across these different industries in terms of the reception to NFTs as a form factor, let alone, you know, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ether, whatever. But for instance, gaming communities, by and large, NFTs are horrible. They're a scam. Don't ruin my games, even though this same community are the ones paying for these loot boxes and all these other microtransactions inside of their video game, yet they don't own that motherfucker. And so at any point in time, the company behind the the, the publisher, they can sit here and, and, and bar your access to these assets. But I guess they're not too concerned about that. But then as I'm starting to see the fashion world and luxury brands, they seem to be doing a phenomenal job with their drops and uh, their consumer base seems super on board with it. So uh, part of uh, I'm curious, what do you think it is that is holding some of these companies back from going the non-custodial route when they do their drops? Because to your point, I've seen data sets you've thrown together of literally like every brand that has done a drop. <laughs> I shit y'all not. This man was crashing Tableau trying to pull up his data uh, and show me some of these sets he was working on. But to your point, it's so dope that uh, for a brand or a company, you can really see, okay, they bought this uh, item or this NFT, but they also hold this in their wallet. And this is the average spend of that person. And it gives you some incredible insights to know exactly where the price sensitivity swings for certain cohorts inside of your your, your client base. And, and we're not even getting super into the weeds, right? So I no. get downright confused. <laughs> when companies don't allow a non-custodial option. Now, other than the concern or the preoccupation that their users are not savvy enough to use something like MetaMask or that they'll lose their seed phrase, 
I really struggle to understand why a company would not, at a minimum, give their 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 users both options. Hey, you can do the web two login, just put in your email address, connect with Google, boom, bat, boom. Now you're on board, and you can get our NFT loyalty rewards points, or connect your MetaMask here. So why, in your opinion, would a brand not at least go for that option? Yeah, a, a big part of it is, and some of these earlier drops, and I'm picking on uh, Budweiser, for instance, they went mm-hmm. that route because they wanted to have debit card transactions. And I know with a lot of brands coming in, the sensitivity is that they're targeting with the Web3 product their core consumer base, um, but neglecting the fact that millions of people around the world now own cryptocurrency and it's becoming more synonymous. You can have it in your Robinhood account. And I think you can transfer it out of that account now too. So purchasing cryptocurrency gates are gone. We're a long way away from me having to go to a bank parking lot in New Hampshire and buying cryptocurrency with money. That's the that's the cash for Bitcoin days where I come from. And that was a pain in the butt, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think the big part is, is the misunderstanding that their consumer base doesn't own crypto and wouldn't understand how to fund a wallet. And you know, if they're interested in your product and it's digital and it's and it's an NFT or it's a token, having a hybrid option is the best solution because you're going to capture both. And I typically see, you know, now we see Coinbase getting into the uh, actual transaction market as well as MoonPay and, and the other huge service providers in Circle that are allowing that hybrid option, which is a mm-hmm. huge transition. And it's actually a better solution because, you know, people will purchase your product because you have that crypto option. You know, I keep a you know a set of funds of crypto in, in you know in a ledger, and if I want to buy with my debit, it's nice to have that option. And I want to transfer it over because I'm being lazy, and it just opens up those you know opportunities to have them the mixed sale platform. And I, and I like that model a lot better. But for people not to, and that goes back to my you know previous point, understanding the blockchain. Most brands don't understand that difference. They you know get pitched over a product that says you know here's your purchase flow. They don't know that they could have a hybrid model with platforms like Circle and MoonPay, um, and I think that's a big part of you know the actual you know client providers that are coming in and informing them that there are multiple payment options and you can choose one. And I think that's a big difference. And we're starting to see brands do both. Um, there are other nuances besides that. It goes into like you said seed phrases. But I see plenty of times, you know, traditional Web2 hooks, like your Google account, uh, a big one I use all the time, and I mean, all the time, but Blockto on Flow, you know, that's a, you know, that's a non-custodial wallet, but it lets you log in with your Google account. You don't have to manage your seed mm. phrases. It's a little nuanced, the decentralized, you know, purist and the maximalist, but mm-hmm. it is a better way to onboard because it truly is a wallet. They just have to link over with their, you know, Web two systems. There's also those options. There's just there's so many at this point that it's almost doesn't make sense to offer that solution. And then in terms of like if you're saying with custodial or non-custodial, having that hybrid model is perfect, and it works for a lot of platforms like Nifty Gateway. Nifty Gateway has both a custodial wallet service and your traditional wallet. You can do, I think they have three, actually. You have your normal wallet login, you have your Nifty Gateway wallet, and then you have that hybrid transaction where you can transfer over to mainnet or to your main wallet and actually be able to sell those products on you know, open seas or other platforms. Mm-hmm. So it's it's starting to shift a bit. Uh, but you know, with brands in general, I think it comes down to just being informed of the options they have. And maybe they do want to have 
you know, they can have those decentralized wallets without the centralization of custodial. And, that, and that's totally an option nowadays. Yeah. You mentioning Nifty Gateway took me back, man, because that was actually the first platform that I bought an NFT on. I want to say it was yeah. February of 2021. And there was a Monster Cat collection. Yo, I honestly just was about to ask, was it the Monster Cat drop? I grabbed one of those too. That's why it's super funny. But yeah. I was about to ask, was it Monster Cats, the constellations? Yeah. Yep. I yeah. grabbed a couple of those too. That's so good. Yeah. No, no, no. It's wild, man, because it's like I was hearing more about the NFTs and I was kind of skeptical for a while because I just, you know, I'd gone super heavy into like DeFi and yep. Chainlink and, and, um, and some of these other um, tokens. And so I was just like late. In my opinion, I was late, but this was shit. Either right around or before the damn board ape yacht club even happened, the drop. Yeah. Um, which every time in hindsight, I'm so like, what you know, behind size 2020. Uh but anyhow, <laughs> the experience was so smooth. And I loved that I could just take the ETH I already had, send it over, but also you had that other option. And um, and yeah, I think I think they do some really cool stuff in Nifty Gateway. Um yeah. so as we see these other these big companies come in, right? Obviously, everybody, you know, people saying this, you know, to the blue in the face. Now we've got Starbucks releasing the loyalty rewards point, and you know they had some PR person tell them don't use the word NFT, uh, but they're doing NFTs with Polygon. We've seen that Apple is mentioning that they are going to allow all of the the people who are in the App Store to to in, uh, include NFTs in what they're doing. We have seen Epic Games come out in favor of NFTs, whereas Steam said no, but Epic Games is Fortnite. So, you know, that's massive. Um, Eventually, I see a world where everybody does have one of these wallets, right? Because it's just, it's par for the course. Just like eventually, you know, when people were first talking about going from paper checks to debit and credit cards, they were like, oh, no, th- th- why would I do that? You know, and then that transition yeah. from that over to Venmo and Cash App. And now we're seeing this next transition where you have something that is uh, more secure, in my opinion, than what you get with a Venmo and a Cash App. How do you think just broad strokes that transition where we do see these big companies onboard millions and hundreds of millions of people? How do you think that's going to just impact data and privacy? Yeah, a, a big part of that is, you know, it goes down to the common phrase that if you don't own your keys, you don't own your crypto. That's like the phrase people use for like mm-hmm. Coinbase largely where they, you know, if you don't have access to your keys, that crypto is not in your wallet. And so that's a big, from my side, that's the biggest concern is how people, you know, manage their money from that side. We trust our banks now anyway, but those are protected by, you know, FDIC, everything else too. A fun Starbucks fact that I was just added the other day is Starbucks is like the fifth largest bank in the United States because of their gift cards. And, their, you know, that's that's insane to think about. Like the fact wow. that there's so much gift card funds available at the fifth largest bank. It's a fun fact to throw out there, but really interesting to hear that. It might be third or fifth. I don't know the exact number, but that's a big part of, you know, people are trusting those services now. Um, it's really a matter of, you know, we have a lot of consumer protection rights for you know, privacy on the internet, but, you know, nothing related to like a blockchain wallet. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> there's, there's, and, and it's the wild west. And, and I think it still will be for a while as legislation, you know, legislative challenges come up. And, but I think that just based on how, you know, the language is coming up and how politicians, they usually lead that kind of initiative and regulators too, 
that we'll see some transitions and and hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, we finally get some kind of, you know, government support is always scary to this kind of world. I think it was always, you know, crypto was founded with libertarian mindset of it's, you know, this and that. But there's almost a need for base level standards for wallets and not that it's, you know, big brother owning your wallet. It's more that that's there to protect consumers. And we are seeing those types of challenges to the norm happen. And I think people are okay with it. We see it with open seas and people getting their, you know, wallets dumped and getting their stuff taken and are very proactive on reporting those things, but there's no consumer protection there. And there's really no paper trail that can happen. Whereas if you have protections for people and that's actually stolen, it is treated like theft. And I think that's a big transition. And there is, you know, it's always the thing that no regulation is, is not, it's just as bad as over-regulation in that case, because there's nothing to protect you at all. Um, but I, I hope to see kind of some transitions there. I don't know where it will go. Um, all I know is that if big brands, you know, the large, one of the largest, you know, food and beverage organizations and companies on earth, Starbucks is embracing Web3, you know, we might see that transition really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. If not just for the buzzwords, you know, people, you know, politicians love to talk <laughs> and they will absolutely love to mention that there's Starbucks coffee they just got had an NFT and most likely most consumers will be onboarded to, you know, web three and, and maybe not realizing it actually is web three. They'll be passively onboarded into a, in my opinion, a better system that works more for, you know, the consumer side and the collector side than it does in the traditional kind of web two sense. Mm-hmm. I like that take, man. And yeah. I just had this realization that Starbucks missed out on a, Phenomenal opportunity to add a new menu to their item, NFT. Oh my god! <laughs> so I'm gonna get that one to them for free. They they might take it. I don't know. It like a, <laughs> or a meme or something like that too. I, I'm you know I use a Starbucks app every once in a while, um, but like just knowing the consumer reward potential and how they've activated. I actually was just discussing this the other day about how they've created kind of their. You know, they're a really interesting use case of technology and, and them embracing Web3, I think, is the pivotal point for probably most brands to be onboarded. They're going to onboard probably most brands, and then as we, and at least in those sectors, but it's going to really take away the risk adverse because mm-hmm. a lot of use case is going to come from it. A lot of analysis is going to come up. Back to that data side, a lot of learnings are going to come up. And because they're coming in, more analysis will be performed on like what users like or what consumers like. Mm-hmm. And, really, and they'll build a playbook. Yeah, and, and they're they're a pure platform play. You know, they started off with a actually downtown Seattle, uh, right in Pike Place, with their first store in like 1972 or something like that. And then over time, they evolved. But you know, their app came out in 2013, and that's where they really shifted their entire model, and it re- recreated. You know quick service coffee in the United States, which everyone's been to Starbucks, everyone knows what it is. And they're on every street corner in a city. And having that presence in Web3 will be insane for growth. Just the fact that there will be millions of wallets created on day one as soon as this activation goes into play, which I think is insane. Yeah, I'm going to be waiting for the moment that they actually open it up and allow it to be compatible with um, self-custody wallets yeah. uh, because I think what would be really amazing, right? For my bags, at least my portfolio would be if this <laughs> coincides with in 2023, the next having that takes, I guess, 2024, technically 
um, the next Bitcoin having. And now that Ethereum is proof of you know stake, and so if they transition over to Ethereum mainnet, and then they open up access for people to connect with the MetaMask, and then this yep. is also after the uh, Bitcoin having, then uh, then yeah, I think we could see something something <laughs> wild it's, go it's down exciting in this space from that side. I think like you know just their product alone and how they've approached it, it's it's interesting, you know, because we already know for a fact that now that they're in Dunkin' Donuts is next. Dunkin' Donuts probably had a spin around in their corporate offices. <laughs> like, damn guys, it! I they beat us! I would guarantee that if they were flat foot, and it's like flat footedness for brands is a big one that typically their competitors get in first and they have to rush the strategy. However, you know, this is a not a longer tangent, but a, kind of a different topic. It's not good to do that. Because rushing to try and run the market is never a good thing, especially to understand the sector. And it goes back to the full circle of if you don't understand the blockchain and you think that it's, you know, you can jump right in and just throw NFT out there, it's not going to work. You know, you can see Starbucks is very articulated with the terminology they use. They did some, they clearly did some consumer research yeah. on what would work and they are still testing the waters. And they're going to be learning a lot. And I imagine this is treated very differently from a traditional product they launch, where it's very hard-lined. There's very strict constraints. I would imagine they have some loose you know, growth because this is going to grow with the consumer base. If people don't like something, they'll absolutely change it. <laughs> and if they love something, they'll embrace it. And other brands will embrace it too. And I think that's going to be what's really interesting. If consumer rewards in the sense that they're minted and you have proof of it and you can show it off to all your friends like a co-app, but for real utility in store, that's going to be huge. I think the reference I used the other day when I was talking about this was the app Foursquare. I remember Foursquare at all. Yes, no, 100% yeah. I do. So Foursquare was a consumer rewards platform that you, when you went to a geo, you know, geolocation, which is like you a restaurant in. or store, you checked in. And if you were the number one person to check in, and sometimes I drive by businesses that I like to go to and check in every time I drove by, just a cheat because I could do that. <laughs> but if you do that check-in process, I can picture that with like Starbucks, like, you know, consumer rewards aren't just, you know, they're not just tied to the app, they're tied to you. And, you know, we get into NFC technology, we get into wearables and everything else that links over. You can already pay with your phone with an NFC reader. You know, if those benefits are traveling with you already, it's just kind of a synonymous relationship between the two. Consumer rewards go to your phone. And that phone's connected to your MetaMask wallet. You know, mm -hmm. it pulls funds from your MetaMask. It also looks to see, oh, it's Board Ape Day. Any Board Ape holder, going to do some promotions, go straight into the store and you get it half off your coffee or you get a Board Ape banana split. I don't know what you're going to get, but yeah. you get something like that. And, and you know, consumers and, and brands can token gate and activate off of your wallet. And I think that's a whole different world we're going to get into, but that's a maybe a longer tangent for another call too. But getting into like what benefits you can do and, you know, even brands reducing seasonality. Starbucks has seasonality in their in their sales. And if you can activate Web3 users to boost sales of certain stores through promotion and wallet activations, you have a pretty cool ability to really activate your consumer base in a positive way as opposed to just push notifications too. Mm. There's a lot of layers here. And, um, and it's still so uh, the E word early, but there, <laughs> there's still so much to be figured out. And yeah. to really uh, kind of massage through the nuances here to really find out ways to, to translate this from a tech level uh, to culture, which is what NFTs as a form factor really did. And then now really move this over to an, an experience uh, aspect, which I think is the, the, the component that has been missing 
from NFTs, you know, and, and the last bull run or the first bull run that they had um, throughout 2021. So cool. Uh, we're up on time for this particular call. But before we head out of here, first off, thank you. And then mm-hmm. if you could also let the people know where they can find you, where they can get in contact with you. Oh, man, I'll do my Twitter. It's a good one, too. LinkedIn seems too formal for things like this, but <laughs> you can grab me on Twitter with with at spicy tuna roll. That's my, uh, that's my handle. <laughs> Usually I say that and everyone's like the wild Twitter handle, but that's it's the, Twitter. Uh, They're supposed to be wild. It's Twitter. Please, yeah. Please man. tell me you have spicy tuna roll. Eat. I do. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Yeah. I, I was about to say, there's no way that. you don't have that. Okay. Was, hell it's, yeah. It's 10 characters, like 10 or 12 characters. It's cheap too. So <laughs> nice. I dig it. I dig it. Well, awesome. Spicy tuna roll, I appreciate you, and uh, and I'll see you soon, brother. Thanks,